And that's what I love about Sundays, is coming and worshiping with the church, and uh, we have so much to be thankful for and much to worship. And so thank you for your participation today. If you're at home, I hope you've been singing along and enjoying our time here in this worship together. Uh, Would you take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 123, please? Uh, We are continuing our teaching series through the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Last week, we looked at Psalm 121. Today, Psalm 123. We'll have a couple of more after this. We won't get to look at all of the Psalms from Psalm 120 to 134, but we'll highlight a few of those that really fit the theme of the teaching series, and that is rise. Uh, Looking at this moment today where we rise to the occasion, rise to the calling, rise to the circumstance that we are in, and instead of living defeated, deflated, and discouraged, we just rise up and follow after the Lord. And so I'm thankful for what we can learn from these particular psalms that the Israelites would have, would have sung together as they would travel to one of the three feasts at the great city of Jerusalem. Now, when we look at these particular psalms, it will be easy for us to just picture in our mind a group of people traveling from their hometown to Jerusalem, lifting their voices in song, singing these particular psalms. But we must remember that there was an author of these psalms. There was a circumstance which motivated them to writing the way that they did. When we come to Psalm 123, we know neither the the writer, the author, nor the circumstance. But we know that there was a plea for help, a hope, a, a want and a need for mercy and for hope in the midst of whatever they were facing. We also can see a great confidence and trust in the author of Psalm 123. And you're going to see that in just a moment as we read the text together. So I think for all of us today, we kind of come alongside, we can, we can read the words of Psalm 123, we can offer them as a prayer to the Lord, even for ourselves, that God would extend his mercy on us and help us with our trust and confidence in a moment where our hope seems kind of deflated into a place where we can rise above no matter what's going on around us. So join me in Psalm 123, if you will, please. It's, it begins a bit abruptly in verse number one with unto thee. And the name of Yahweh, the Lord, is not uttered until we get to the end of the, the second verse. So let's look at this. Unto thee lift up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their master, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, So our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. This morning, as we study Psalm 123 together, we grab the title from verse number 3. Have mercy on us. The prayer for God to continue to do his work. It's interesting when we study the basic meanings of grace and mercy. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ, his disciples and believers in him, we've experienced both that grace and mercy. Grace, the extension or giving of something that we do not deserve. Salvation, redemption, forgiveness. And then mercy is on the other side of that spectrum in that he did not give us what we do deserve, and that is eternal judgment and punishment. 
And so this morning, the plea comes from the psalmist for God to continue to extend his mercy. And so this morning, let's study this together. Would you bow with me in prayer as we ask God to give us his message today? Father, we pause and we offer ourselves in full dependence upon you that you would give us the message from above. We thank you for the music preparing our heart. It has pointed our, our emotion and our direction, our exaltation and our praise to you and to you alone. And so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to be a part of a church body, a congregation each and every week that we can join together in a unified spirit. Though we bring a lot of baggage, all of us with some distractions and elements that have seemed discouraging this week, we can cast those at your feet. We can be free from those elements at least for a little while as we hear from you. So our prayer this morning would be that the message comes from above and that it would give us encouragement along the spiritual journey, but that it would also bring us conviction, the desire for change, that we would be challenged to take steps of growth as our ultimate desire here on earth is to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, set apart from the world to be more and more godly. So, Lord, now use this time to strengthen us in that journey, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The short psalm here in 123, it, it starts with, unto you I lift up mine eyes. And this really short and abrupt psalm has great intent and purpose written within it. Right away, we would see the direction of the worship being toward lifting to heaven, the eyes being directed in the proper way, the proper place. We know that even in, within our own lives, with the prayers that we offer to God, a very natural direction is going to be look above in a way of almost seeing into heaven, a way that we would see him face to face, a, a way that we could engage the throne of God in order to petition on our behalf what it is that is on our heart. Our worship, our praise, and our, our adoration goes to him, and so our prayers are unto thee, O Lord, it's into thy direction I lift mine eyes." The thought here for the psalmist would be that even in their own region, in a city by Ugarit, and north of Israel, with the Canaanites, and in their culture, uh, they were teaching that in a moment of siege, that their hope would be found in the phrase, they would say, lift up your eyes toward Baal. This would have been their false hope, their false God. So when the psalmist comes to writing his element of praise, that would be used throughout all generations for the Israelites to use as worship and celebration. He knew that the only one true way of worship and direction is going to be to God, to the Lord Yahweh, and that to be toward heaven. And so the question for us is when we are looking to focus our attention on God, where is it that we find our eyes? Now, I know physically, I enjoy some moments in prayer in my office where I sit in one chair and look across into the other as if I'm having a conversation with the Lord. Or I enjoy the moments of walking around the campus just in a, a prayer walk of, of uh, prayer and worship to God. So the moments in our life where we are having, having the freedom of prayer wherever we go in a spirit of praying without ceasing, but we know that ultimately the direction of our prayer is toward God, enthroned and dwelling in all of heaven. This is an important truth for us. It gives us the realization as God, our creator, who is the king of kings and Lord of lords. It's the servant waiting for the master in his leading. But as we study this psalm, Psalm 123, with this focus that is on the Lord, we see two main themes that kind of jump out in these verses. In verse 1 and 2, we see the importance of remembering God's proper place. It flows right from that very first phrase, unto thee. It's to you 
It's that I will lift up mine eyes, O thou that dwells in the heavens. It's the heavens where God is enthroned. It is the proper place of our worship and exaltation, our adoration and our praise. That's why so often you will hear from this pulpit and just preparation for our corporate worship together and that we're worshiping into the audience of one. I love the privilege I have to sit alongside of you and to worship with you, not thinking about what's going on, who's not here, who is here, what are they doing, what problems are they going to cause, or any of those issues. It's just joining together in worship because God is our focus and our attention. I love those elements of our corporate time together, but then even overflowing from that, do you find yourself humming along the songs for the rest of the afternoon? Do you find yourself driving from work, thinking and meditating on something that was said or done in our corporate gathering together? That is not of worship of man. It is not the element that says, wow, that guy's good. I know we're not saying that. And we're not saying, wow, those singers are amazing. No, we're not saying that. Because everything that is done is always directed into its proper place. It's always to the direction of God. And so if the traveler in Psalm 121 would be able to sing, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills, from whence does my help come from? He says, my help comes from the Lord. He's looking beyond those hills. He's looking beyond just those elements of earthly things to see something so greater. And this even more deep-rooted is the victory that is being won by the psalmist who would write in Psalm 123. There's no distraction for him. It is not Baal. It is not some hill. It is not some earthly element that takes away his vision, his passion, and his sight. It is always going to be toward him who reigns and enthrones and dwells in heaven. Jesus Christ in the New Testament would give us the example of the direction of our prayers. The disciples would come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he would offer what we call now the Lord's Prayer, a pattern, an example of how to pray. And right from the very beginning, the direction was our Father, which art in heaven. The direction of his prayer was going to be directed in the right place. It was not about him in that moment. It was not about the circumstance in that moment. His prayers were going to be directed to God the Father. And here we would find also that he follows this by saying, Hallowed be thy name, holy, consecrated, honorable, blessed, and respected is your name. The psalmist would understand this as he would write because he ushers in, in verse number two, that we're going to wait upon the Lord our God. There's a lot of things that we wait on. Some of us are waiting on news this week. Some of us are waiting on circumstances this week. Some are waiting on a change in our circumstances. There's a lot of things that we anticipate and we wait for. And the psalmist is using this moment to reference in verse number two, this subtle change, the subtle change from the proper place and direction of the worship to now how we as servants of God, how we do that worship, where our looking is, where our waiting is to be and how we focus. He makes this focus about the uh, verse number two. He says, behold, as the eyes of the servants look unto the hand of the master's. And as the eyes of the maiden to those of her mistress. He says, in just that same way, our eyes as the followers of God, the ones who worship Yahweh, we wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. This tells us even that they're waiting to focus their attention for as long as it takes. There's no timeline put on here by the psalmist as he would write. There is no waiting of a, a deadline to come. There is just this moment that says, I am willing to wait as long as it takes to keep my attention on him. 
They have refused to ease the strain of the culture around them by giving in to the scorns and the rebuke by society. I think that's really important for the church today. I think it's important for all of us to to realize and to understand that we must refuse to go against the strain that is working against the joy while they renounce our God. And by the way, buckle up. It's going to happen. (laughs) It's going to happen more and more. There's enough going on that if you want to be bogged down every day, you just turn the TV on and you will be bogged down and discouraged each and every day. If you want to be offended, just turn on the news. Just look on the internet, just read some articles and get on there with some of those posts. I Really, even the, the possibility of being, of being offended and discouraged now has come with just being on social media, where that used to be an element of encouragement. Here's where we went to vacation, sitting down with pizza, you know, just different things like, oh, that's so cool. Now it's a lot different, but we must refuse to ease the strain of waiting on God by just giving in to the pressures of our culture and our society. It's going to get more intense, and so the church has to buckle up. The church has to be ready, and we have to be prepared. And so the psalmist says we're simply going to serve while we wait. The idea here is like a waiter or a butler just standing behind the master seated at dinner waiting for the motion, waiting for the, the, the step that is to be taken next. And the, the, the slave or the servant watches the master, the, the maiden watches the mistress to find any slight movement that gives them indication of what's going to happen next. I was thinking a little bit about this, and I remember several years ago the the church presented Natalie and I with a little uh, two-night getaway to Orlando. And so we were able to, I think it even included a spa package. And, uh, and then there was a gift certificate in there for dinner to the uh, Bull and Bear restaurant in Orlando. Scott, do you remember that? And uh, the reason why Scott remembers that is because he had to coach us on this. Like, this is, this is next level kind of restaurant. You know, this is I love 1961 in downtown, but this is 1961 on steroids. This is like next level. So you got to dress up. You got to look nice going in. And when you get your reservations and you greet, they greet you and they take you through the steps of getting to your seat. When they seat you, you don't just have your one waiter that you hope finally makes it back to your table at some point. They give you six different waiters. And they're all there and they all have their different responsibility. And so you're wearing your black pants, and, and you sit down, and, and they bring a black napkin because they don't want a white one to leave a lot of real linen against you or the, the things that that leaves. And so then there was another person that as soon as you eat your bread, now eating bread at a restaurant like that, that's like stressful, right? You don't know what to do with bread. Like, okay, am I supposed to cut it? Do I pull it? Do I dip it? Do I lick it? I mean, like, what do I do? So you just kind of just go with it. You're like, spirit, lead me as I dig into my bread. And so as you get ready to eat your bread and you're eating it, as soon as you take your last bite, there's somebody there with his scraper and plate, and he's ready to scrape all the crumbs that you left behind. And then like, anything else, sir? You're like, well, I was actually, I'm used to eating those crumbs, but you go ahead, take them. All right, I'm fine. I'll just get another piece of bread, I guess. I mean, Taco Bell, they don't usually come and do this. And then when you're ready to order, they go through all the steps of ordering, how to cook it, what goes well with it. They go through everything with you. As they bring your meal to you, you take three sips of your water. They're ready to refill it. They ask you how many ice cubes you want. I mean, they're just watching everything. 
And I just remember that experience being pretty fun and memorable and some of the best steak we ever ate and some of the most fun that we had. We chuckled for a long time about how any small gesture or movement, they were on it. They were ready. Now, in a greater sense, as the servants of God waiting for the gesture of our master, waiting for the moment where he says, this is next, come, go, stop, just wait, be patient, I'll let you know when's next. You're so often in the servant's mind that we live in our Christian life, we want to execute it ourselves. Or instead of coming ready for the plate and the scraper to clean up the crumbs, we say, that's God's mess. You deal with it. Or sometimes when the master says more, I need more from you. I need to stretch you. I need you to be this. I need you to go here. Let's do this together. So often we kind of hide back in the dark corner hoping that the master's not looking for us. So the psalmist says here in the intensity of what is going on, We as the servants of God must show great devotion and steadfastness, that we would be unmovable and unshakable, that the world cannot pull us apart, but that we would stay focused and in tune with God's will and God's way, no matter how rough and difficult the waters are going to be. And some of you have lived it. Some of you have stories to tell, and the script that is written of your life goes nothing like you thought it would 30 or 40 years ago. And your five-year plan, 10-year plan, and 15-year plan was thrown out the window five minutes in. And you're like, wow, what do I do next? This is where our master, our king of kings and Lord lord of lords, this is where he who knows all and is sovereign over all is looking for his humbled servants to just be willing, wanting, and waiting to serve and to be used by him. And so the psalmist looks to God in this regard, and he illustrates here in these verses from the human to the divine and from the earthly to the heavenly, and our eyes should be on the Lord to mercifully meet our needs. So the question we must ask ourselves is, how do we wait on the Lord? I mean, if you had to grade yourself this morning, in looking back at the last two weeks, three weeks, six months, how would you say you have waited on the Lord? And then in those moments of waiting on the Lord, how would you say, how long have you been willing to focus your attention on Him, removing the distractions? You know, the distractions that take our eyes off of Him, and some of us are facing those right now, it's It's doubt, it's worry, insecurities. Man, if we gave you all a whiteboard to write on this morning and say, just come up with your sharp or your your black marker and write on the whiteboard, what are your top 10 worries and doubts right now? I think some of us would sit here like, uh, could I go 20 actually? Because 10 isn't going to make it all. Because the doubts and worries, the insecurities are very distracting to keeping our attention on him. Then there's the, the struggle with the critical spirit. There's a lot to have a critical spirit about. I mean, I got to Friday night, and, and we were watching the news. What a way to spend your Friday night. And um, I just had to say, honey, I, I'm, I'm just going to, I just need to get, get out. Of course, we had to, I had to go to Target anyway to get something that we had forgotten to get earlier that day. So I walk out, and then, of course, I forgot my mask. 
So I had to turn around, hit that, critical spirit left and right. And um, I wasn't in the mood to go into Target and minister to anybody. Um, I wasn't even wanting to use my line that I always use. I'm smiling under this mask. And I, I didn't, didn't even want to make anybody laugh, right? And, um, and God had to deal with my own heart at that moment. Because here's what we also find with this antagonistic spirit, with this critical thinking, is that if that becomes very natural to us, and that's how we deal with people, we don't like the mandate coming out of the city commissioner's office, we don't like what's coming out of the White House, we don't like what's happening on the left or on the right, we're so fed up with all the fights and the arguments and all the politics, and all of a sudden we become critical and antagonistic toward each other, and that's going to naturally flow in our response to God. So that when the master says, hey, go, or the master says, come, or the master gently says, hey, wait, all of a sudden our critical spirit, our, our antagonistic way of thinking is going to now naturally pour out toward God. Like, well, God, this is your mess. You deal with it. Or God, I'm going to do this on my own. God, catch up. Hope this is going to be fine with you. And all of a sudden, that just naturally flows from us. That's why we have to keep our, our hearts in check. That's why this renewing of our spirit, the renewing of our mind, is a constant pouring out that says, God, use your word to refresh my spirit today. May I experience your mercies today, because they're made new every day. Let me experience that so that I can find victory. So that when people around me who, by the way, by the way, God, they're very annoying. You can be honest with him. He knows your heart. When these annoying people around me start to pull at different strings, I want to respond in a merciful, kind way. So the psalmist is saying here, the proper direction of my spirit and my worship is going to be toward God who is in heaven, who is enthroned and dwells there in the heavens. And he says, it doesn't matter how long, I will wait on the Lord until he has mercy on us. Now, the psalm moves from verse 1 and 2 from a general expression of this hopeful anticipation to now explaining Israel's predicament. It's a little bit of their, their complaint. And so the community of Israel, they find themselves in an environment where, are, where they're despised and where the name of Yahweh is scorned. And so what they're looking for is God's help in this matter. By the way, that's why I said at the beginning, we can partner alongside of this because some of you experience that all too often. You experience people in your life who scorn, disdain, they have contempt against God. They don't understand why you're in church on Sunday. They don't understand why you're, quote unquote, a follower of Jesus Christ. They don't understand why you need this crutch. They don't understand if God is love, why does this happen? And the list goes on and on of the scorn that they try to bring into your life because of their disbelief and their contempt. So Israel is facing this. And the author of this psalm is penning these words and he says, Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we are exceedingly overflowing, overwhelmingly filled with contempt. It's coming from every direction. And it's not like I just have this one moment every year, but it's coming from every avenue. And so this plea for God's mercy is that we must plead for that. 
In verse 3 and 4, the psalmist waited for God to send his mercy. And the more he waited, the more he cries out. Look at the repetitiveness with the emphasis, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. So he knew that the devil and the enemy and the evil and the proud, and that they offered no help to them. And so they only had contempt for God, this great disdain. But do you know what the theme is of verse 3 and 4? I think you see it. It's what we're talking about. It's a prayer for the mercy of God, not God's justice. The psalmist is seeing a culture around them who is very contempt against the things of God. They're arrogant. They're scornful. They have great disdain. They have a hatred towards the things of God. And the psalmist doesn't say, God, bring your judgment in so swiftly. Just wipe them out. He says, no, we need mercy. We need you to give us something that we don't deserve. So here we would find this this plea. So he cries out of his heart. And it's not so much that we seek God's justice in our lives, but that we seek his mercy and pray for him to show us how we can be just with one another. Matthew 5, 7, Jesus with the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us a great thought here of these different things of finding true happiness or blessedness. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 7, we come to the one that he talks about being merciful. And he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now you realize that God is not, Christ is not giving multiple choices to the disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. He's not saying, here's a list of being happy, either be poor in spirit or humbled, either be mournful for your sin, either be meek or either be hungry for thirsting after righteousness or be merciful or be pure in heart or be a peacemaker. No, he says, these are the things that a follower of Jesus Christ will naturally have as a part of them. And so he wants to use us as a free flowing force of mercy to others. He wants us not only to obtain mercy, but to be merciful to others. And Israel's sin had led them to one disaster after another. We think about Moses leading the children of Israel around the wilderness for 40 years, a trip that should have only taken them a few weeks, a trip that they should have gotten to to the Jordan River, crossed over, and conquered Jericho, Ai, and the whole long list of cities they could take over. Because that was God's promise. That was God's leading. But they're murmuring, they're complaining, their disdain, their scorn, and their distrust to God caused them to wander in great disaster for 40 years. In the midst of all of that, they experienced a lot of things. But overall, God's mercy always overcame his wrath. Because what God's mercy did is it created hope. Even as we would get later on into the Old Testament and we would study Israel once they've taken over the promised land, after the conquest and they've inherited the land, they are now moving forward except they continue to turn their backs on God. They continue to worship false idols. They continue to turn their back on their first love. And God brings great judgment to them, takes them into exile. So what happens is God prepares these judges to bring them back to God. They, they mourn for their sins and they repent and God's mercy comes in and brings hope. Yet again, then we would find that Moses would write in Psalm 90, 
As Moses would pen these words, he's thinking back at the moment of wandering around with all of these nitpicky complainers called the Israelites. He remembers the conversations he's had. He remembers the personal attacks that the Israelites have made on him. He remembers seeing his God face to face, and he remembers being given the law to pass down to the people of Israel. But he remembers so great those moments of judgment and God's wrath that he would pen these words in Psalm 90, verse 14, O satisfy us early with thy mercy. The word early is directing toward the morning. It is early in the day. He says, as I start my day, as we focus on our day, would you extend and satisfy and fill us with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. But verse number 15, he says, make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us. He said, in the same days that you showed great affliction, would you even that out by giving us great days of hope and great days of mercy? Sometimes we come to the end of a week, seven days, say, was it a good week? I had four good ones and three bad. Yeah, it was a pretty good week. Those three bad days were not as bad as the good days of the four. And we kind of balance it out a little bit. Or sometimes it's the other way. We say, yeah, it was a bad week. I had six bad days or whatever it was. The psalmist is saying here, bring great balance to this. Moses said, the days that we face great affliction, would you bring us great hope and mercy? He would later say, let the favor of our Lord, our God, be upon us. So God's people had suffered. They had suffered greatly under the chastisement of the, of the Lord God. But Moses would wonder out loud, how long will this continue? Would you bring mercy to us? Do you sit there and wonder how long does this mess have to continue? Do you wonder if it's going to look better in five months? Do you wonder once all the bigness of everything going on is kind of back to normal that maybe we can get back to the normal things? I don't know. We may think that there really is a new normal. I don't know. We can't get really caught up in all of that because that just causes us to be a little bit doubtful and worrisome. So we just pray that God continues to show his mercy to us, and we beg him for this extension of mercy, just as Joel did in Joel chapter 2. This prophet began to write, and when he would write, it was the Lord giving him the message that there was going to be a great attack on the people of Israel, and what was going to happen is that they would be ransacked and taken, but then chapter number 3 ended with this great hope that God would reward and give back fruitfulness to them and to their land. He would be a, a God of his covenant, a God of his promise. So in the midst of all of that, Joel writes in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, and he says, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, here's what the Lord says, Turn you even to me with all of your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. You know, I look at a verse like that, and I think as the Lord said to his people who were in mess, culture around them was messy, and he says to all of your heart, fast, weep, and mourn. I think the question we need to ask ourselves was, when was the last time we just wept for our nation, mourned, fasted for our leaders? When was the last time that we became less anxious and antagonistic and more humbled 
and reverent to pray that God's will would be done. I'm really kind of tired of having the conversations on social media about the next latest political mess and would really like to hear from God's church about people that they're trying to witness to in their workplace or their neighbor or somebody that God's brought into their life that they're just pouring the gospel truth into them. You see, at some point, the church has to move past the messiness. At some point, the church has to realize, like, that's just, that's just this passing world. There's greater things of eternity that we must focus on. And sometimes it means we need to pause in the busyness and chaos of our life to just mourn, to weep, to fast, and to wait on the Lord. So before you're ready to post your next antagonistic post on social media or come up with your sly comments of disdain against something of leadership, why don't we find ourselves to rend our heart and to turn unto the Lord our God? Because he's the one who is gracious and merciful. He's the one who is slow to anger and of great kindness. We don't repent with the idea, God is so mean, so I must deal with this so that he won't squash me. The idea is that God is so gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, that he would spare me from what I deserve to have in my life. And because of that, we must be willing to extend that to other people. We must be willing to express that. We must be willing to share that. We must be willing to allow that to flow from us. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He said, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or admit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. You see, we just look at people as our enemy. Now remember, hurting people hurt people. That's been something really important for us to learn throughout ministry and just throughout the church world. Like hurting people just hurt people. And instead of looking at them as like what they did do or what they omitted to do, look at them in the eyes of Jesus of what they are suffering through. C.S. Lewis really kind of wrapped this up for me when I was studying it out because as I'm looking at what the psalmist wrote and I'm looking at the mercy that we're praying to be extended to us, but then the mercy that we should extend to others, think about the people who are suffering in your life. Some of you have family members who have claimed the name of Jesus Christ, yet they, their lives and their actions are nothing of godliness. Some of you have friends who you're so baffled and confused at their lack of tenacity for the things of God or their lack of passion or steadfastness. Or maybe as a church body, sometimes we wonder where, why this person seems so carnal on the outside. And there's so many things that we become a little bit judgy over. And really, the judginess is just coming because we understand by their fruits, you shall know them. And we see their actions and we see their attitude. And we see so many people who once claimed the name of Jesus Christ, but who have left their first love. And when we look at them, we would say, what is it about them that I just want God to do something to rattle their cage, to shake up their world, to do something to bring them down? Sometimes we need to pause and pray for God's mercy, his compassion, his forgiveness to come into their life. I, I get it. People, people hurt us. And, and I'm with you. Like, 
they're on my list. They hurt me. I'll be kind to them. I'll smile at them. I'll give them a fist bump. But next Sunday, I'm avoiding them. Now, if I avoided you today, it's not because I'm mad at you or you hurt me, okay? I tried to get everybody. But the truth is, on this, this moment, is that we need to be praying more for mercy from God to be shown to them, to rescue them, to bring them back. Because that's what he did with us. That's what he continues to do with us. And so remember, the psalmist is saying, for mercy, 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 even those who are exceedingly filled with scorning, even those who are prideful, even those who are contempt, those who show great disdain. So here's what C.S. Lewis did to, to help me with this thought. He said, in the end, that faith, that's God, which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us. Either conferring glory inexpressible, that's what I want, or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. You see, there are people in our life who are suffering shame. And if we don't pray for God's mercy to rescue and forgive them, they may come to a point in their life where they meet face to face with God and are inflicted shame that can never be cured or disguised. So our pleading for God's mercy must be motivated out of a desire for ourselves to be shown mercy, but also for others to experience God's compassion and forgiveness. And you know what? There are some of you out there that you are so good at this. You can sit down with somebody and you can hear them out and you can listen to them and you are processing in your mind, wow, this dude is a mess. But all you simply say to them is, you know what? God loves you, cares for you. He wants to save you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to change you. And then sometimes we deal with Christians who they tell us their story and after an hour we say in our mind, dude, they're a mess. And all we want is God to come in and smack them around. You will get what you deserve. That's what we say. But what about pleading like the psalmist who said, God, just show mercy on us. Show your compassion. Show your forgiveness. We don't deserve it. We deserve damnation. We deserve condemnation. We deserve separation. Yet look at what you continue to do. My life, though I am nothing for you, you continue to use me. You chose to use me. So would you do the same in that daughter who has despised your name? Would you do it in the son who has walked away from everything they grew up knowing? Would you do it in that church member who seems like they are just so disengaged and they've walked away from their first love? Would you do that for the person who just cussed me out? Would you do that for the person who has mocked your name? Would you just do that for the person who wants nothing to do with God? Remember the expression of mercy that David offered in Psalm 51 as his prayer. He said, have mercy upon me. Now this came after King David had committed adultery. This is a king who had shattered the throne by having one of his military leaders murdered. This is a man after God's own heart who had wandered away from the things of God. And he realized 
He must beg for God to have mercy on him. Psalm 145, the psalmist said, The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all. So what Psalm 123 does is it reminds us that God alone is just and that we are dependent upon him completely. If we're dependent on our own understanding, if we're dependent on our own analysis, and if we're dependent on our own conclusions, that's going to get us in a huge mess. So we have to be dependent on him completely. For many in here, the fear that God will abandon you is an ongoing concern. And so you wonder how much more it'll take. You wonder how much more it'll happen before God is gone. But we must realize that the God of the word, the God of the Bible, we must know his ultimate desire is to rescue those that have turned away from him. When you look at what he did for the people of Israel, when you look at the covenant promise from Abraham in Genesis 15, and you look at everything that the people of Israel did from that moment to now, and you look at all that they encountered and all that they did, God continued to show his mercy again and again and again because he will fulfill his promise. He will fulfill his covenant. So church, when we look at the moments in our life where we've wandered away, teenagers in here, college students in here, married couples, grandparents, and everybody in between, when you look at your life and the moments where you have wandered and walked away, don't question whether God will abandon you. You run and you plead for God's mercy to be extended to you so that you might find peace and confidence in his faithfulness and the fact that he will always only be present in your life. That should bring us to a place of realization, a Christ-conscious moment that leads us to live more and more like him. James Luther May says this, The gesture of raising the eyes to the one enthroned in heaven is the pilgrim's answer to the mocking questions. Remember the mocking questions. You believe in God? Like You, you go to church? You do that church thing? Like, you give your money to God's church? Like, is God really love? Is God just? Why do bad things happen to good people? So these are the mocking questions that happen to his servants, his children, and the gesture is at once one of entreaty and dependence. So we look within ourselves. Can I depend on him? The pilgrims look from a world that questions their God to the God who rules the world is the one that we must all be willing to take. So as the psalmist started here, his prayer was, the proper place of my worship and direction is to God alone. He's my full dependency. And then the entanglement of what's going around me, I must plead for God's mercy, not only on me, but for those around me. So I know that things are happening, and it's discouraging and disappointing, and it's frustrating. I mean, some of the things that are happening in the big cities, if it was happening in Lakeland, we would be pretty upset. But the thing that I want to find myself with is not becoming so antagonistic and so conflicting in my spirit. I want to be asking God to extend his mercy to people who are unrighteous, blinded by the enemy, and who are in desperate need of redemption. So when I can be motivated by that, 
it completely changes my emotion and my focus. So that now I can see as things unfold, I don't have to defend one man over the other. I don't have to defend one platform. I don't have to defend a party. I can use biblical truths and biblical principles which will guide me the right way to vote, and I will use his word to do that. But when it's all said and done, I'm going to have my faith and trust and stability in a God who never fails, in a God who has set out apart from the world his church to be used for a greater mission. So today it starts by us praying for God's extension of mercy, not only on us, but on the unrighteous.